Well, good morning and welcome to the church in Malvern. We are glad that you're here. We're in week number three of a five-part series, and we have been looking at Jesus the light. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I'm not really a patient person. I, I, some of you may be patient. I, I struggle with that. I mean, you can just ask my wife what happens in the car if there's a red light that turns green and the car in front of me is not going. <laughs> it's not a pretty picture. It's kind of uncomfortable. She's, uh, and it, so I'm just not patient. Um, patience is not my thing. I just don't like to wait. Um, at, when I was a kid and it was Christmas time, I you know, I just almost couldn't stand it, waiting to see if under the tree was going to be that one thing I really, really, really wanted. I was just not a good waiter. And if I um, bought somebody a gift when I did, if I bought it early, I couldn't wait to give it to them. I mean, I would try, but I eventually just gave it to them early anyway, just because I don't like to wait. Now think with me, can you imagine, can you just imagine if you had to wait, let's say we, we have trouble thinking about this, uh, just a few months for something, if we had to wait months, or think about if you had to wait a whole year for something. I mean, that would be tough for me. It would be tough for a lot of us. If we were waiting with anticipation for something that we had promise, been promised would happen when we were little as children and we're still adults and we're still waiting for it to happen and yet we still have that anticipation? Can you imagine that? I can't. Uh, think about this. If you're not waiting a year, not a decade, but can you imagine what if you were waiting your entire lifetime for something that was promised to you as a child? Maybe it was even promised generations ago to somebody else in your family, and it's still, because you're their relative, it kind of passes to you, and you are still waiting, and it hasn't happened. So we're not talking about waiting. Now you're an old man, an old woman, and it was promised a long, long time ago, hundreds of years ago, a long, long time ago. Can you imagine waiting that long? Well, that's kind of what it was like for the nation of Israel. Their whole life was kind of just hurry up and wait. And so think about it. Adam, God gave him some promises. And then along came Noah, and God gave Noah some promises. And then came Abraham, and God gave Abraham some promises. And so Israel finds themselves now just waiting. And what we discover is that they're waiting 400 years now after all of those promises. Now they're waiting 400 years as slaves. And they finally get their freedom. Moses leads them to freedom. All the Exodus things happened. But then they find themselves waiting for 40 years, kind of running around camping in the desert. 40 years for the promised land. And once they make it to the promised land, then they find themselves waiting once again, but now for a Messiah and just waiting on the promised Messiah. I, I just can't imagine. It must have been brutal. And they had this, because of all of that waiting, probably they had this off and on again, on again, off again, on again, off again, over and over and over, that kind of relationship with God. And then they find themselves waiting here 400 years, and then there another 400 years, and all the while, time keeps ticking, ticking, ticking into the future. Where are my old people at? There we go. There we go. So I, I just have this feeling that it was right about that time, nation of Israel 
uh, wrote a song. Uh, I don't know if it's quite a worship song. I don't know what genre to put it in. But every time they kept waiting, it was as if God was telling them no. And here it goes again. He, we're waiting, 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 and he's telling us no. I think that's about the time uh, they wrote this song. I've got it here on my phone. I want to play it for you. I don't know if you can hear it. It's so uh, ancient, this Israel. That's probably what they wrote about then. Everywhere they looked, God looked at them and said, mm, no, no, <laughs> my, my name is no, <laughs> my sign is no, no. And, and, and you know what they did? Very often, they actually did let God go. <laughs> they really did. They, they, they had this on and off again relationship with God. And for me, when I put it in that context, it makes a whole lot more sense to me why they were on and off again with God again and again and again. Man, hundreds and hundreds of years at a time of just waiting. And let's be real. They were much better waiters than I was, or than I am right now. I mean, I've admitted to you before, the fast food drive through for me, that's not fast enough for me. The nation of Israel is waiting in line for thousands of years, and they have no conditioning, they have no Netflix, they have no Amazon Prime. <laughs> They're just waiting. They got brutal. But here's what's interesting to me. Through all of that waiting and all of the uncertainty and all of the on-again, off-again relationship with God, God still, he still continually gave Israel all kinds of reminders that he was actually still with them. They may have been waiting on things to happen, but God was there with them. And throughout the Old Covenant, we see this, God reminding them over and over again, hey, I'm still here. I'm right here with you. And he's still guiding them through all this process. And he's still letting them know, listen, hang tight, because I'm planning something really, really big for you, and you're going to be a part of it. And all of this waiting, all of this on and off again relationship as God is reminding them, hey, I'm still here, he does that with many different things that are filled with light, filled with light. Light was a big part of God reminding them and letting them know, hey, I'm here with you. Let me give you a couple examples. Light was a big part. Even at creation, we find that as we talked about in week one, we find the very first quote of Jesus, who is the light, and he is there with his first quote, and Jesus says at creation, let there be light. And then we find, uh, according to King David in Psalm 119, it says, King David says, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Over and over and over, we see light again and again and again. And during Israel's 40 years of wandering around, camping through the desert, God gives them during the day, the, uh, during the night, this pillar of light, a pillar of fire to remind them I'm here, or if they were traveling at night, to guide them for that night. Wow, 
it happened every single night while they were camping, wandering through the desert those 40 years. And now we also have uh, the prophet Isaiah, one of the most famous prophets. And he tells them that not only is God this pillar of light for you, but also he has this other light that he's planning for you, a light that is to come. Isaiah says there's this saving light, this redeeming light, a light that is going to bring great joy to all the world and all the earth. And he's going to be a light that is for all people. You see, light was even part of Israel's feast. Um, We talked about the feast, um, how they reminded Israel of God and what he he had done and of God's promises. And we talked about how uh, the spring feast, the first feast of the new year began with the feast of Passover. We talked about that this spring. But then there are a total of seven feasts that happen, and all of those feasts, they begin with Passover and with everything that Passover uh, promises, and then on the calendar year, it ends with the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was often called the Season of Rejoicing, and that's there's a very special reason, because the Jewish people felt the promise of the Messiah could happen during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so every time, every year that feast rolled around, it was a a time of rejoicing. They remembered that they have been waiting for a long time for the Messiah. They've been waiting for God to fulfill his promise of what God is going to do through the Messiah. And they'd been waiting a long time, a long time. And yet, somehow, every year at the Feast of Tabernacles, They had great anticipation. It was like, this could be the year. It could happen this year. Year after year, hundreds of years, year after year. This could be the year. This might be the year that God's Messiah, the Christ, shows up. Because God's great work, this whole celebration of the festival season began with Passover, the grand work that began at Passover with the redemption story. It now culminated at the end of the year with the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a time of restoration. So the Feast of Tabernacles was the seventh and final feast of that year. Three feasts that they had, uh, three of those feasts, Uh, the men were required to travel to Jerusalem. Everyone who could travel to Jerusalem. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was the only three feasts they were required to travel. The Feast of Tabernacles was the last of those three feasts. So it was a big deal. There were lots and lots of people in Jerusalem. Lots of things happening. Now, as part of the Feast of Tabernacles, God commanded them to go build shelters, kind of little tabernacles, little booths, some of them called them. And these were to remind them that the Israelites, when they were wandering through the desert those 40 years, they were in temporary shelters. And that was the reminder of that. Um, and then during the day, they would come and they would gather, and for and through much of the evening, they would gather at the temple for a, a just giant, vibrant um, celebration. 
and the celebration would happen for a long, long time. But this went on for seven days. Uh, the temple priests would be with uh, special sacrifices, but there were two very important ceremonies at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it happened every single day, and and here's one of those involved water. We're not going to really talk about that one today. I want to focus on the second ceremony, the second ceremony, and it happened every day. This one in the evening, it was the illumination of the temple. That's what they called it the illumination of the temple. And this uh, ceremony involved lighting four um, golden oil-filled lampstands, and they did it in the court of women. So this was kind of mostly an outdoor court. These lampstands were, uh, they were impressive. They were kind of like candelabras, you know, they, they called them uh, menorahs. They were 75 feet tall. Now, this ceiling is about 15 feet tall, so it was like whatever the math is on that. It was like four or five times higher than this, and so we're talking about Jerusalem. The uh, <clears throat> The temple was up on a hill, and so these were these were so bright, these, uh, these four uh, giant lamps, they were so bright. There was four of them, 75 feet high. It was said that they would illuminate the entire city at night. It was impressive. It was quite the spectacle. And celebration um, was something that uh, some of the holiest men in Israel, um, some of the priestly order, they had certain things they were doing. It, it, was, it was a big deal. It was, uh, it was a really big deal. But at the core of this festival, they were all reminded that God had promised to send them the true light, the light, a light into the sin-darkened world. And this specific festival, they're reminded that Israel, that God had promised to send the Messiah to Israel. They were going to be released from suffering, and they were going to experience joy. So here's what I want you to do with me this morning. Just kind of picture for yourself as if you are in first century Jerusalem, somewhere around maybe, let's say, 32 AD. And let's imagine that you're in the temple area, and the Feast of Tabernacles is going on. And imagine the giant menorahs that are lit, and they're lighting up the entire city. And they would be imposing. But these symbols have two very specific realities that you have been taught since you were a child. And here's the first reality you were taught. You were taught that these lights represent the light of all lights, they represent the Shekinah glory, which is the visible presence of God in the temple. And so as you see these lights, you're reminded that God is with us right here in the temple. But the second thing you're reminded, the second thing is this, you're reminded that this great light, another great light, who would soon come to bring light to those who are spiritually 
in darkness. And that light is coming as prophesied by Isaiah. Man, it must have been something to witness that. And believe it or not, everything I've told you so far is just to build up and lay a foundation for what I'm going to tell you next. Because I want you to picture this. You're in Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles is going on. And as this feast ends, possibly on this eighth day, the last, the very last night on this eighth day, these great lights are extinguished. And as those lights go out on this eighth day, it symbolizes yet again the end of another Feast of Tabernacles. But more than that, another year going away, another year that the Messiah did not show up, another year that Christ, the Christ, is nowhere to be found. And on this eighth day, possibly, very possibly, as the lights are being extinguished, you look in the distance on the temple court and you see kind of a plain looking man but there's a crowd gathered around him and he's moving this way. And that plain looking man, it appears must be this man they call Jesus. He's got some popularity. There's people who are following him. And from inside the temple courts with your very own ears, you hear this man with his voice declare to everyone, he says this, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. This is amazing to me. That is very possibly on that eighth day or very close to it of the closing of the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus makes this statement. You see, we all know this verse. We've heard this verse. Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. We even declared that as we began this series and this topic of Jesus' light. And probably, very possibly, as these giant 75 feet tall uh, menorahs are being extinguished, very possibly, Jesus then saying, I am the light of the world. Jesus proudly offering himself to the world as the light proudly claiming to be the very one that Israel has been looking for all of these years. They've been waiting. They've been looking for a long, long time. So how long have they been looking? A long time. But let's just jump back part of that. Let's jump back 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years before Jesus was born, we find that the... Uh, the prophet Isaiah was letting them know 700 years earlier that the Christ was going to be coming and he was going to be shining his light into the darkness. And it would be a light that was going to defeat the chaos of sin and it was going to usher in the peace of God's rule and reign. And here's how the prophet Isaiah says this. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light for those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And then he says this next, for a child is, to, is born to us, a son is given to us, 
The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, once again, jump forward with me to day number eight of the Feast of Tabernacles, the very last Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus would celebrate here on this earth. And so you're in Jerusalem, you're at the temple, and you are witnessing with your very own ears and your very own eyes, you're witnessing God piercing the spiritual darkness. And it's with his very own son. And Jesus declaring to all of Israel that he is the light, he is the Messiah. Jesus is the light that has been pointed to, celebrated by the Feast of Tabernacles for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, many generations. And now Jesus is declaring this. He says, I am the light of the world. And he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He says, if you follow, I have to pause there because I need to point out this word follow. That word in the Greek, it doesn't just mean get up and do something and go follow. Here's what it literally means. It means it means follow him now and keep on following. So Jesus is saying, if you follow me now and you keep on following me, wow, follow me and never stop following me. Follow me and don't stop. If you follow, he says, me. He says, I'm the one I'm talking about here. He says, if you follow me, Jesus, the rabbi, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the light of the world, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. Oh, you can certainly choose to walk in darkness but you don't have to. You can choose to walk in darkness. That can be your choice, but you don't have to walk in darkness. And he says here why. Because you will have the light that leads to life. Now, if I have lulled you to sleep, look, pay attention for just a moment. Do you actually believe that statement? You see, I believe if someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, then here's the question that I have for you. Does that statement permeate your entire life? Do you live with the power that comes from that promise? If you follow the light, you won't have to dwell or live or walk in darkness. Because Jesus says, you now actually have the light that leads to life. And I really don't believe that is an empty promise, that those are just empty, meaningless words. And here's why. Because Jesus actually proved that. Here's how he proved it. When Jesus was placed in the tomb, stone cold dead, after being on the cross, then three days later, He walked out of the grave, and he proved to you and me 
by dying for us, just as he said he would. We talked about that last week. By dying for us, just as he said he would, he proved to you and me that he is worthy of our devotion, that he is worthy of our very lives to say, I'm going to attach my life to you, Jesus. He's worthy for it to be said that it is no longer I, Harley, who live, but it, but it is Christ who lives in me. He proved that he's worthy of my devotion. And here is what he said. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And for generations, Israel just waited and waited. For generations, Israel kept watch, and they were hopeful at every feast of the tabernacles. They were hopeful. This might be the year. And then right in front of them, at this specific one, right on time, this man named Jesus from a tiny village in Galilee called Nazareth, this man is declaring that he is that light the light of the world. And it's the light that they were promised 700 years ago by Isaiah. And let me tell you something. This is not something that we can simply ignore. And if you were there on that day, there's absolutely no way that you could ignore what Jesus said. If you're standing there 2,000 years ago, like it or not, agree with him or not, you had to do something with that statement when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, because it didn't just mean he was going to bring something good. He was declaring that he is the expected Messiah. And when you read further into John's account, you find out that they had to do something with that. They had to do something with that, and they did. There were three different responses. We see, if you read through that account, some of the people who were there, the religious, many of the religious leaders, they, here's what they did. Um, when they saw that, the religious leaders, they chose to reject Jesus. They were like, no, 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 no. We're not going to listen to what you say. You're claiming this about yourself. We don't have to listen to this. So some of them rejected Jesus. There was another group. Another group of people asked him some more questions, and they inquired to get some more information. And there was a third group, though. The third group, here's what they did. They believed in, this is what we talked about last week. They relied on, they clinged to, and, and so here's what they did. Some of them entrusted their lives to the care and the control of Jesus in that moment. But of those three responses, only one of those leads to any kind of transformation in our lives, any kind of change in our lives. Only one. And obviously, it's not unbelief. Uh, it's not even, though, just seeking more information. The only one that leads to change, it's those who chose to entrust their lives to Jesus. They're the ones that experienced the light that he offered. So, imagine that you're there. Can you believe what an ending that would be to the Feast of Tabernacles? If you had seen that? the feast that had always pointed to that hope that the Messiah would come. And then finally, he steps 
from the dark into the light of this sinful world. And the people who were there, John, who wrote this down, he was there to see it. And all the other people were there to experience it. They saw the word. They saw the sun, the light, claimed to be the light of the world that brings everyone life. Some rejected. Some asked questions. But some believed. They relied on. They clinged to him. They entrusted their lives to his care and control. And here's where we wrap it up today. My question is simply, what about you? What about you? Because we too have to do something with that declaration. What about you? What have you done with that declaration of Jesus? You see, there's not much wiggle room. Because when we take the statements of Jesus, these claims that came from Jesus of Nazareth, either he was really who he claimed to be, or Jesus was some crazy man. Because sane people don't make the claims that Jesus claimed if they can't pull them off. So he either really was, and we have to determine that for ourselves and follow him. He either really was, or he was just kind of a crazy lying carpenter. And so we too have a question. Are we going to reject him? Or are we going to find ourselves just questioning him and living a life? I don't know. I'm not sure. Until I get all my questions answered, I'm just not sure. Or are we going to follow him? I have to look back at Israel and think how long they had to wait. Generations, hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting for the Messiah. Then he finally showed up. Finally showed up, but many said no. But some followed. Think about this with me. How long have we been waiting? I know it feels like we've been waiting because, you know, um, we've been waiting on something that was promised way before we were born 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, as Jesus left this earth, before he left, he said, hey, listen, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. He said, do not worry. I'm going to prepare a place, but I'll be back. And I'm going to come back and get you so that you can be with me where I am, my father's house, forever. And here we find ourselves waiting for a promise that happened before we were ever born. Your grandmother's 104 years old uh, last Wednesday. That's old. She's been waiting a long time. but we've been waiting 2,000 years. You know what the new covenant says? The new covenant says, listen, don't worry. God's, God's not, he's not slow at keeping his promises. It's all part of God's plan. He's not slow. He's not behind. He's right on time. But you know what the new covenant then says? He says, he's not slow at keeping his promises. You know why he's 
waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting on some of you. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. Oh, you can choose it. You don't have to follow him. You don't have to live your light in the dark. He'll, let, he'll allow you. But perhaps this morning, he's waiting on you. My simple question is this. Will you reject him? Will you live a life that continues to question him until you get all of your questions answered? Then maybe, then maybe I'll follow you, God. Or will you just respond? If God's spirit is calling your heart right now, I pray that you will respond and you will follow him. And that's what we talked about last week. You come to the place in your life where you say this, I'm going to rely on you. I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to entrust my life to your care and your control. Yeah, it's been a long time. Jesus hasn't come back in my lifetime. And you know, when we read uh, the news, when we scroll through Facebook, man, it can be disappointing. It can be discouraging. When we hear all the tragedy that has happened even just this past week in our own community, wow, it can be discouraging. This in spite of what you might think, when you consider the current state of this creation that God made, I want to say this He is still the light of the world. Because just like John wrote, we talked about it in week number one the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Never. And this thing that the new covenant calls the ecclesia, which is the church, the gathering of believers, it's what Jesus promised that he would build himself. It's what he promised that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades would never overcome it. Well, that still exists today. And it's why we're here today. And it's why we're gathered today. But here's what it tells us. It means that we... <clears throat> We are still serving a purpose, a part of his plan right now. We still are at this very moment. And here's what else it means for you, very possibly. If you hear God's spirit calling you today, you still have a choice. You don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to go through life hopeless because Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. So I end with this. Reject him or question him, but I hope you'll walk in his light that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, I think to the shock of that statement that you made, Jesus standing in the temple courts, declaring that you are the Messiah for all of Israel, that you are the Messiah for the entire world. 
that it is your light, your life. You're the one that brings life. And that same Messiah offers us one single path that will lead to an eternity with God. And that path is you, Jesus. And that path you offer us today. If we follow you, you call us to follow. And in that, to never stop following. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray that we'll do just that. Amen.